and welcome to Unfamiliar Tales, a podcast about animals telling animal stories. We are your hosts. I'm Haley Milliman, and this is my co-host, Prathima Gopalakrishnan. How are you, Prathima? I'm good. Hello, everyone. So last episode, we left off on a cliffhanger with Murr returning home from his sojourn into the world to find a building on fire. Now, Murr doesn't realize that this is actually his house on fire. His first reaction as he comes up to this building is that he smells a delectable scent of burning meat on the air, and he thinks, mmm, smells good, smells delicious. Uh, But, you know, Murr's been out all night. (laughs) His stomach is empty. He's hungry, and he comes upon this fire, and he's not particularly concerned about what might be burning. But we also promised that we'd be talking about some more metaphorical fires, namely the fire of love. Uh, And this episode, both Murr and Chrysler are um, feeling the pangs of passionate, fiery love. Um, I'll have to take their word for it, but we will be beginning today with the literal fire which Murr walks up to. So Murr returns from this adventure about town with Ponto. Ponto, it seems on purpose or not, has led uh, Murr back to what turns out to be Murr's own block. Ponto runs ahead when he sees this fire. He uh, leaves Murr behind, but Murr instead jumps onto this ladder and goes up to the roof. And he's up on this roof and he thinks he's safe and he can kind of smell slash, you know, hear the fire. But then a chimney sweep emerges from one of the chimneys and shoes him away. So then he jumps into the nearest gutter, it seems like, and he realizes that this is actually the building where Master Abraham lives. So he's, um, you know, both very relieved and also uh, very alarmed. He's relieved because he has, you know, coincidentally or maybe not so coincidentally, again, it seems that Ponto led him back here. Um, he has found his way back to Master Abraham's building. But first of all, he it takes him a little, it takes him some time to actually figure out which, to actually find Master Abraham's living quarters within this building. And uh, of course, the building seems to be on fire. Yes, <laughs> but Master Abraham is not very concerned by the fire. So Murr reunites with Master Abraham and almost immediately... Professor Lothario, who is Ponto's human patron, comes running in and says, oh, you know, there's a fire that's going on. Um, And Master Abraham, he says to Professor Lothario, like, what's the real fire here? Is it the fire? Is it like how stressed out you are about the fire? There are some different fire protocols here. I was very alarmed. I was very distressed and alarmed on Murr's behalf. Yes. Essentially, Essentially, what they do is they're like, Master Abraham tells... Professor Lothario and his other friends to to gather some belongings and basically prepare for evacuation. And he puts Murr in this little basket and covers him. And, you know, Master Abraham himself, then he, he leaves to go put out the fire. And then he tells Murr and his friends, you know, if it comes to the point where we have to evacuate, I'll come back and we'll take the stuff that you pack. I couldn't tell, like, where is this fire? Like, if it's in the same building, um... Maybe I would just leave just to be... Maybe I would just... <laughs> just to be safe, Yes. Yeah, you know, out of an abundance of caution. Um, Murr at first is very happy to be home and Master Abraham, you know, says to Murr, like, I, he is so happy to have him home. He like has never loved him like he loved him, you know, <laughs> to love and to lose, right? So he, and he like feeds Murr and puts him in this little basket and Murr's kind of like feeling good. But then I think the fire is just kind of creeping closer and closer. I actually got the impression that the fire was maybe on the roof. So, mm. um... I mean, it says that at some point Murr was 
potentially in more danger when he was on the roof. That makes sense. He's on the roof and then the chimney sweep kind of chases him off and then he goes from skylight to skylight in the building but all of them are closed and then he finally finds that Master Abraham's skylight is open and Master Abraham looks out. That's how he's reunited with Master Abraham. Yes, and I think it also could be like a bunch of houses because the other thing I thought it might have been was like a bunch of houses close together and maybe like the roof of a nearby house was on fire but not Abraham's specifically and then... The fire is moving closer. And that's maybe why Master Abraham is so chill about it at first. That could be. So it's a a fire on the block with a shared roof. But it's not. That would explain why he's going from skylight to skylight. This seems to make sense. Because there are actually also uh, the social life for cats that happens in the attic Mm -hmm. and the social life that happens in the cellar. Well, the attic is interesting because Murrah's mother is in the attic of maybe, maybe it's some kind of shared attic. Like he's able to access the attic, but she doesn't seem to be living in the same house as Master Abraham. Her litter was drawn by some other woman, old woman that is also not in Master Abraham's house. Possibly the attics and the cellars are kind of a shared space as well on this block. Yeah. Yeah. I think everything is connected. So Murr is in this basket having just returned home and he's at least very close to a fire but that's not kind of the only scary thing that's happening to him right now because there's also the crew of master abraham's friends and so as master abraham runs off to go deal with the fire this crew of people led by professor lothario who if you'll recall is again ponto's human patron and the person to whom ponto brought evidence of Murr's scholarship Um, So they kind of all crowd around Murr, who is in this little basket, and they start talking about how they want to kill Murr. To be fair, it was just it was just Professor Lothario who who said that. Yeah, but I guess it's like a mob. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, definitely the the spectacle of like all three of them crowding around his basket and Professor Lothario has it has it out for this cat. Yes. And it's really scary for poor Murr. And of course, Murr hears all of this and is able to understand what's happening. And this is also, I mean, this is different than what Mina warned him. But, you know, he's had warnings before of how his passions are going to put him in some kind of danger. And this has become like a a direct danger to his life. Okay, what does Professor Lothario say exactly? So he says he'd like to go over to the basket and basically knife Murr. Um, and and he says he says that he wants to do this because he says that Murr is like mocking him or he has this idea that Murr is very self-satisfied. Yeah, so if you recall, Professor Lothario, when he discovers that Murr uh, has learned to read and write, he brings that evidence to Master Abraham and he actually accuses Master Abraham of raising this cat to mock mm-hmm. humans who are reading and writing. When this fire incident is going down, Professor Lothario feels very threatened by the idea of this cat reading and writing. Well, it's interesting, like if you think about Ponto, right, and how Ponto says that everything Ponto does while self-serving, it's all for Ponto, but Ponto's doing it in a way so that the the humans think it's for them, right? Like the humans think it's for their benefit. And it seems maybe that Professor Lothario is almost angry because it seems like what Murr is doing is for only Murr's benefit, right? Like he's not doing it for Master Abraham's benefit. He's doing it just for himself. And it's interesting how Lothario thinks that Murr taking action on Murr's own behalf is, is mocking in some way rather than just something Murr's interested in. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because in in part one, his initial thought is this must clearly be Master Abraham's doing. Like he, yes, you know, he's he's like making fun of me. He's mm-hmm. taught his cat to read and write to make human professors look silly. As if human professors needed any more help looking silly. Um, and, but I, I think you're right. In this scene, maybe, maybe he's convinced by Master Abraham's disavowal of this of this whole Murr reading and writing thing. But yeah, Professor Lothario has guessed correctly that Murr does, does in fact understand everything the humans are saying. Mm-hmm. He can in fact read and write. So he actually uh, has guessed everything correctly. He's concerned that this cat is going to snatch up publisher advances because everyone's going to be <laughs> so enamored by the idea of a cat reading and writing. I mean, it's not. He's also concerned. <laughs> He's also concerned that the gosh, if you have a cat reading and writing, then what hope do humans have of ever, you know, getting a job as a professor? Master Abraham is on the good side of the Grand Duke, and that cat's going to become a lecturer, receive a doctorate, and end up as a professor of aesthetics. Just like him himself. Just like, yeah. So he's worried he's that Murr is going to take his job. I mean... He should be. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> now that as, as we're breaking this down, it seems logical. I don't know. His behavior is not logical, but his reasoning... Absolutely logical, yes. But we should turn our ire on, you know, the nature of publishing advances rather than threatening to knife Murr. This is a bizarre scene. Well, you know, and in the end, Murr was published and the human was not, right? Like Chrysler's narrative is the accidental one here, not the the on-purpose one. So perhaps Professor Lothario was onto something. I think Professor Lothario should should look into encouraging Ponto to write an autobiography and then kind of slipping his own third person biography of Lothario <laughs> alongside it. having it split. That's yes. that's your hope. Sorry guys. I mean, if you're trying to publish right now as someone who has published exactly zero things, it's a tough <laughs> world out there and, you know, this, this is this is your best chance to getting published. Your name and Hitch your ride to your cat or your dog. I'm telling you. I mean, as someone who tweets and nobody likes it except for you, <laughs> the one tweet that I ever had that was fantastic was of my dog. And it went a little mini viral. Anyway, can I ask you a question? Would you recommend that Murr gets a PhD? Murr... I think would be limited by a PhD. I think most cats would be frankly limited by by what a, P- <laughs> by, a PhD. by by kind of the path yeah. of a PhD. I think I think Murr would like to have institutional library access, you know. Yes. Yeah, he would. I think he would like he seems like a perks guy. I think he would like the receptions and the free food and the schmoozing. Yeah. Life of the mind, like his, you know, like he would like those aspects of it, but I don't see him like serving on committees <laughs> and like being department chair like Sandra O oh in the yeah. new <laughs> series that's apparently coming out that I cannot wait to watch. I didn't wait. I haven't. Is this where she's a department chair? Oh, amazing. Yeah. That's the, that's the kind of representation. I can stand for. Sandra O oh can represent me in anything she likes. Yes, yes. And as many people think Sandra O oh represents me. <laughs> um, <laughs> in 
in daily life. For our listeners who do not know what I look like, I have curly hair and am Asian, and many people think I am Sandro, <laughs> or or do they think we look alike. Uh, but anyway, I think it's funny because Professor Lothario is like inventing this whole future for Murr, right? Uh, that Murr hasn't even necessarily thought of, but then towards the end of this episode, Murr is like, actually... I liked that. <laughs> like I liked the idea of my of me lecturing to a full hall and you know I could I could feel I think he says something like I could feel the doctoral cap <laughs> like resting upon yeah he said I, I could already feel it resting upon my brow. And so in some ways like you know Lothario was right about um what Murr had been doing but now he's also kind of giving Murr even more ideas. Alarming as my time in captivity had been, yet I felt an inner satisfaction at the professor's remarks about my presumptive career, and his clearly voiced envy delighted me. I already felt the doctoral cap upon my brow. I already saw myself at the lecturer's desk. Wouldn't my lectures be better attended than any others by young people desirous of knowledge? Could any right-minded youth take it ill if his professor forbade him to bring dogs into college? There's a lot of truth in this. <laughs> in, in this passage, I gotta say, Mara's like delighted by <laughs> Professor Lothario's envy. He's like, yeah, I'm the shit. <laughs> I'm- yeah, I am gonna be a lecturer and everyone's gonna come. <laughs> Mara's like, he's imagining the cat professor paradise that he's going to create. I, you know, I'm not going to burst his bubble about the reality of academia. Um, (laughs) I want him to, I want him to only, only enjoy the fun parts. Yeah. Well, if there's any justice in the Mer cinematic universe, like the Marvel cinematic universe, there was a an event that split everything into a multiverse. And so in one of those multiverses, Murr is indeed a professor <laughs> lecturing away <laughs> to to rapt students. <laughs> what do you think the event was? Oh. Probably Prince Irenaeus losing his princely status. Yeah, maybe maybe that was the point. <laughs> I have to assume that that's, that has changed everything. <laughs> or maybe like Matt, one of Master Abraham's organs has like some weird properties to change the nature of our reality. I wouldn't put that past him. Oh, Master Abraham and his organs. So Lothario and the group is kind of standing over Murr talking about Murr's future and how Lothario wants to kill him. And then Master Abraham kind of walks in on them um, and sees them like suspiciously standing above his cat, perhaps holding scissors. So why are you all standing around staring sinisterly at my cat? Yes. So he arrives in the nick of time and, and Murr, you know, is fine. No worse for the wear and has all of these, has all of these ambitions now (laughs) that he never even knew he had. We do get a lot of um, references in part two to different kinds of um, electric charges, like, you know, people touching other people and like feeling this charge, you know, electric or kind of electric adjacent. We hear about it in this scene where uh, where Professor Lothario and the other two people are standing over Murr. Professor Lothario is the only one of the three friends who is straight up like... Let's get a knife and slit this poor cat's throat. But the but the other two friends are 
they're they're trying to kind of talk him down and say, you know, you're being ridiculous. Unlike Master Abraham, Master Abraham's reaction was, of course, I'm not teaching my cat to read and write. The the friends who are with Professor Lothario, uh, one of them at least is is pretty amenable to the idea that yeah, you know, there's precedent for animals to become educated. For example, he says Puss in Boots or this novella by Cervantes uh, called The Dialogue of the Dogs, which has this uh, talking dog named Berganza. Side note, Hoffman actually wrote a sequel to the Cervantes dialogue with the same characters. So this is not even the only uh, work of Hoffman's where he's ventriloquizing animals. But the... Uh, other friend objects and says, you know, you can't... The other friend is a little more skeptical about this idea that animals can read and write. Um, and then they get into this whole discussion of something called animal magnetism, which is basically this theory of natural history at the time, that there was this force that all living beings possess and static electricity. They understood static electricity as a manifestation of this living force. As Murr is hearing this, he's remembering Mina telling him uh, about experiments apparently carried out on her where people tried to touch her fur to generate static. And she's remembering this as traumatic experience. And so he is also very alarmed to hear them talking about this. So these, so even though the other two friends aren't, um, you know, they aren't in the extreme situation of Lothario trying to kill this cat, they're still having this kind of weird conversation about experimentation on animals and, you know, living this very kind of abstract natural historical theories of living forces and things like that. And I'm talking about all this because this living force, oddly enough, comes up multiple times in this part. We promised we'd be talking about literal and metaphorical fires and this crackling, this uh, electric force, this this keeps coming up in, you know, both here, but it also comes up a lot in Chrysler's sections. Uh, so, but before we get to Chrysler, we're going to talk about Murr's own forays into the world of love. The world of love, yes. So the other major event that happens for Murr in part two is he meets a lovely young creature whose name is Kitty, who becomes Murr's first love interest. So she's a little she's a little calico cat. She's a white cat with kind of a black cap and black little boots. So what does Murr think of love at this point, Haley? Yeah, so up until this point, Murr has been very skeptical of love. Um, so he talks about it with Ponto on on their walk back. We talked last episode about how Murr and Ponto have a great, uh, they keep great pace with each other as they walk. Uh, they walk side by side um, and have all manner of conversation. One of the things that they talk about is love. Uh, and Murr at that point is really skeptical of love. And he kind of, he talks about it as like a, men almost like a mental condition that humans have where it's not, it's almost like it's all made up in their head. He really doesn't, he really doesn't see it as as something real. And definitely not, I feel like, at that point, as something that could potentially afflict him. I think he thinks of it, he thinks of love, and he talks of love almost as as one who has not been in love, kind of does, where you're like, oh, that's just this thing, and I'll, you know, if I ever fall in love, I will, you know, retain myself, or I will... Um, I'll be in control of myself. I'll never do this foolish thing or this foolish thing. And then Murr meets Kitty and almost immediately falls into this physical and mental state where he's just consumed with thoughts of her. 
uh, at all times. And so everything that he had kind of said previously about love being something that's just this, this odd affliction, um, that, you know, that you could have control over now he, he falls almost completely, he's almost completely helpless to, to Kitty from, from the moment he sees her. So I, I read that passage a little differently, Haley. You're right. He does say that, you know, it can really be nothing but a state of mental illness manifesting in the male sex as a delusion of partiality. But I don't think he's saying it's purely mental. What I took away from this is that he has never been in love. His experience, as of a lot of things, his experience with love is he says, well, you know, I've read what some poets say about it, and I, I don't think I've had... It's like he looks on WebMD for, you know, <laughs> symptoms of love. And he's like, well, I don't seem to have any of these. And so as a result, when he first meets Kitty and he falls into this, like you said, this deep physical uh, depression, his first his first reaction, of course, is to go and see, you know, what the poets say about this. Uh, <laughs> you know, if they, can, if they can help see him through this difficult uh, time in his life. So he, he, he turns to Ovid, which I have to say is uh, much classier than, you know, my, my experience of love was exclusively filtered through Archie <laughs> Comics. I don't know. Mine was Ovid. Was it really? Okay. I don't know. Weren't you like a classics nerd? I was a classics nerd, but, uh, you know, not not like Mer, I guess. So he, yeah, so he he says that he reads Ovid to kind of, to, to learn about cures for this, <laughs> for this disease called love. And Ovid's suggestion is to, uh, is to invite the lady to sing. <laughs> So that when she sings terribly, you are cured of your love. Yes. <laughs> um, we'll learn how that goes for Mur. So what goes down? Well, so first, Mur sees Kitty for the first time on the Ides of March, um, which is a bit of a bit of foreshadowing for for how their relationship will ultimately go. But oh no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it must be. I mean, why include the detail if not to foreshadow? I hadn't. I hadn't noticed that. Yeah. So they meet on the Ides of March, and Mur just falls head over paws in love with her. But so he sees her from the attic window. He sees this beautiful creature clad all in white with these fetching black spots. And for Mur, it's really love at first sight. He's kind of stopped in his tracks as soon as he sees her uh, and lets out this kind of little meow. He can't help himself when he sees her. And then she just disappears. Um, and, and the next day, Mur is in this state which he has never been in in his entire life, and he he can't make sense of it. Um, so, like we just said, he turns to the poets. <laughs> um, he turns uh, to his, I guess, version of WebMD, which is Ovid, <laughs> to figure out what what is what is going on with me right now. And he, you know, maybe Control F's Ovid to find, you know, <laughs> like heartsick foreboding or something like that. Um, and he, he reads through the poems and he realizes, oh, what's happening to me is love. The What's uh, this, you know, I can't eat, I can't sleep. It, this is love. Um, and well, you name it, you claim it. Now he's like, okay, well, this is that thing. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Science Man for, well, in this case, Mr. Mr. Poet, Poet Man. Man. Yes. Sometimes science just doesn't do the trick. But yeah, so now that he he knows that it's love, he 
he goes again to, to find Kitty and to see her. Uh, so then he goes, he met her, he saw her first on the attic, then he goes downstairs and finds Kitty again, and she's just as beautiful as he recalls, and... She's engaged in the delicate arts of the toilet. Yes, the toilet. T-O-I-L-E-T-T-E, <laughs> toilet, not Privy Counselor toilet. We're going to keep coming back to the Privy Counselor. Yes. <laughs> at least every episode. <laughs> it's not an episode without... But he... He he says when he sees her that like she doesn't really need any like artifices to heighten the charms. She's just charming all by herself. A little bit, little bit sexist. She's grooming herself, um, and I suppose she was at this moment grooming, grooming her paws and then rubbing them on her, on her ears. My mm-hmm. cats do that. It's very cute. I suppose she was not grooming her anus. No, which perhaps he would have found less cute. Yes. Yeah, and so then the first words he says to her are lovely one, be- beyond the first meow, of course, um, which was not really to her. It was just kind of her, about her. And a meow, of course, as we've learned, a meow says a lot of things. Yes, meows can be many things. He has a meow for every occasion. Yes. <laughs> he has you know, winning meows to acquire a sausage, yeah. <laughs> a winning meow to win over strangers, a meow to, you know introduce himself as a young man of charming manners yes. which is what he's doing here i hear him in my head just going like me ow Ooh, i like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> so then that's his uh lothario yeah, meow exactly. but maybe he doesn't want to be known as lothario that's true yeah lothario is a cursed name in the mer and the mcu <laughs> a ball. The fresh morning air, a tennis ball to chase. These are the things that bring a smile to my face. What do you think? Oh, wow. Thank you for inviting me to your open mic, Knox. This is um, really, really special. I didn't realize that you wrote love poems. That too about ball. Well, yeah, I mean, I know that you have such a, you're such a talent in the industry and you're, you know, the best country pop writer there is. I, I, I'd hope you liked it and, and could maybe, you know, even think about producing this. Well, flattery will get you everywhere, my, my furry friend. But the truth is, my schedule is pretty packed with producing songs. Hey, listen, why don't you send your mixtape over to my people? You do have a mixtape, right? A portfolio? Um, I, I mean, I can. I can. I can do it, you know, I can work on it tomorrow. A little bit of advice from a veteran in the field. If you want to get anywhere, you're going to have to have a portfolio. We just don't work with one-off hits anymore. Not that I'm saying that this is a hit. But, but you think it has potential? I would never look a young artist in the eyes and tell them they didn't have potential. Okay, mixtape, you said. I can do that. I hadn't put together a portfolio because I figured the fact that the song went viral on TikTok would be enough to, to get me some notice in the industry, but I'll take your word for it. You're the expert. Oh, oh, TikTok, huh? So you're, you know how to use TikTok? 
Oh yeah, I love TikTok. There are so many different kinds of balls on my algorithm. Tennis balls, basketballs, baseballs, ping pong balls, all the balls you could love. I knew it was the place I had to release Ode to Tennis Ball. I can't have another artist turned down by me go viral on TikTok the next day. The shame was too much to bear the last time it happened. Well, tell you what, Knox. Send me your TikTok. But if I help you produce this, you have to teach me how to use TikTok. Oh, I promise, Pebbles, you will not regret taking a chance on me. I heard about something called the FYP for you, Pebbles. You will love the FYP, Pebbles. It'll have all the content you crave right there for you. Well, sounds great. her again at the bottom of the stairs just delicately grooming herself and he he whispers to her he says lovely one be mine she is like oh you're very bold uh and are you honest do you truly love me and he swears immediately oh yes i do love you i do we are told that this exchange mimics almost word for word uh uh, some other book like some other famous kind of exchange b- between two lovers mm-hmm. So there's some reference here that's unfortunately lost on us. <laughs> Neither of us are huge romance <laughs> fans. <laughs> so. I hear romanticism and I think, oh, you mean like the new romantics like Taylor Swift? Yeah, we're the, we're the new romantic. If I feel heartsick, I will consult the poet Taylor Swift. <laughs> she did say heartbreak is the national anthem. Yes, we sing it proudly. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, so Murr says that he loves her and Kitty believes him. And then she, she says, I love you too. And it seems like, oh man, it's going to proceed. Everything's proceeding according to plan. And Murr kind of goes to embrace Kitty only to be foiled by these two giant, like gigantic tomcats who kind of jump out of nowhere and tackle him, rolling him into the gutter. He basically just barely manages to escape um, and racing upstairs. So his first uh, his first encounter with Kitty is unfortunately, I mean, they've declared love for each other, so it's progressing that way, but it's it's cut short before they can have any physical consummation oh boy. Of, their, of their courtship. Yeah, poor Murr. He, so he's rolled into this gutter and he says, waves of dirty water closed over his head. Um, but luckily he managed to escape and Master Abraham, when he returns home, Master Abraham... Uh, this is becoming a theme with Master Abraham, I think, first laughs at him, is like, ha ha ha, looks like you got into some trouble, <laughs> and then bathes, bathes him, which Murr hates, and then wraps him, um, wraps him up warmly, so he's, you know, he's pretty shaken by this whole thing, but he, you know, eventually starts, he starts feeling better, but he cannot stop thinking about Kitty. He's so distracted from everything, everything that he has loved up until this point, everything that makes him Murr, he just can't even do, and even Master Abraham kind of notices this change in him. Faced with this situation, um, Murr decides to turn to the poets um, to (laughs) think of cures for his condition. And his poet of choice, Ovid, as we mentioned, um, and Ovid's recommendation is making the lady sing so that when she sings badly, you will be immediately (laughs) cured of your love. And so Murr says, let's give it a try. (laughs) That's such a like perfect ancient poet like thing. Like this is how you must prove your love. <laughs> you must either sing perfectly or else I am not in love. 
<laughs> I think this this kind of reminds me of like go check out their social media to be cured of love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Murr's on the rooftop and he starts singing and Kitty is like, is that you? Murr is singing so beautifully. Um, and he says, he, he like goes back to her like, what did you, how did you know it was me? Sweet creature, which I think is, I think is kind of funny because it's like he's con- concocted this whole plan to like. To test her. <laughs> it seems like, yeah, exactly. It seems like almost like feigned excitement. Like me? You knew me? They begin to sing together, and uh, I don't know if it's, you know, fortunate or unfortunate, but, you know, she's perfect. She sings beautifully. She passes Ovid's test with flying colors. Ovid has let me down for the last time. I am never taking love advice from this motherfucker again. And he kind of says it like, I feel like this whole, this whole part of Murr is so she, he's like, tell me, how do you know it was me? Do you love me? And then he's like, would you, would you like to sing a little duet? Just like, why don't we try a little duet? Crafty. Yeah. Like as if he doesn't have a whole plan. Um, But yeah, they strike up this like tender duet and Kitty's, Kitty's fantastic. And Murr sings falsetto, of course. (laughs) Yes. A powerful powerful falsetto. falsetto. Which is very important, um, and they sing. Uh, they sing several arias together, um, and one is Kitty sings so beautifully that Murr just breaks into at one point a howl of joy, which I think is <laughs> just fantastic. Um, and then eventually, a black cat appears on the roof and starts watching them. And this is my favorite favorite part of the scene. Yes. Mara looks at him and says, hey, like, who are you? Like, you know, get off the roof. I'll, I'll kick you off the roof. Unless, of course, um, you would like to join our, our singing. Um, and he said, and in, the, in an aside to us, he says, because, of course, I knew that this black cat is an excellent bass. And I wanted him to sing along with us. And so the three of them, actually, I don't know what the, uh, the three people singing is. Triet. Trio. A trio, yes. So the yeah, so the three of them uh, start singing, um, you know, several songs, and they're having a grand old time on the roof. This is one of my favorite parts too, because they Mara says that somebody screams out like, "Can't you shut those bloody cats up?" So I just like I love to imagine just like three cats like sitting on a roof, just meowing really loudly, and someone's like, "What the fuck is going on? Like, why are those three cats like just wailing?" Um, I lived in Philadelphia for a little while, and the there were definitely a couple of cats singing arias right next to yeah. my house. <laughs> I picture this in Philly too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot of, Philly is a great great city for um like the cat singing scene for sure. Lovely lovely city for many other reasons, but also if you're a cat who loves to sing, that's that's where you go. So, this is this test has you know, it hasn't proven that kitty it hasn't broken Murr of his love but it has kind of i feel like broken the spell that he's like moved beyond that like lovesick phase to now he's just like in love with kitty and his appetite comes back yeah his appetite comes back yes they lead a happy domestic life (laughs) Um, i think Murr says at one point um not for long not for long they were leading this happy domestic life on this straw mat 
Uh, but then there's a change in Kitty's behavior. He says that she starts being absent-minded when she's with him. Um, well, we learn that... So Musius, the black cat with the excellent bass voice, is the one who clues Mer in that Kitty Kitty may have moved on from Mer. We learn that Kitty may have fallen in love with a young fellow who has come back from the wars. Uh, so this is a cat who's living uh, <laughs> off of fish bones and leftovers provided by a cafe proprietor nearby. He's talk of the town among all the lady cats in you know in in the area. Uh, and so he's he's a war veteran. <laughs> I don't know what war. They say he has a pension. And he wore he wore a fine foreign uniform of black, gray, and yellow with the order of the burnt bacon on his breast for courage. Yeah, a cur- He had a medal of courage for when he. He and a few comrades set about ridding a whole larder of mice. All right. This guy well, is, I personally, I think this guy is no competition for Mur, but... Yeah. What's that, what's that meme? It's like you and the guy she tells you not to worry about. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening here. <laughs> Poor Mur. He's got a fancy uniform. He's got a medal of courage. But Mur doesn't want to believe this terrible, scandalous news. Um, and Musius, Musius was going to be, we're going to see a lot more of him in part three. Uh, he's going to be a, a moderating influence on Mur. Well, that's not quite true. Musius is, is going to be, he's, he's, you know, he's there to kind of tell Mur to snap out of it when, when the moment calls for it. So he tells Mur to, you know, kind of suck it up, let Kitty go. Mur instead decides to pick a fight with this cat, uh, this Order of the Burnt Bacon cat, but he ends up a little bit worse worse for wear um, after that. Uh, but then eventually, eventually Kitty and Mur finally do break up. Uh, and it's actually, it's a, you know, credit to Mur. It's a very uh, non-dramatic scene. It just kind of, they say, you know, they agreed that they had become wholly intolerable to each other and then they parted forever. <laughs> and then they put our pa- they put their paws around each other and they shed hot tears of joy and delight and then they parted. That was it. <laughs> and he returns to his sciences, his fine arts and sciences. This whole thing, <laughs> the hot tears of joy and delight, reminded me a little bit of this Star Trek DS Nine episode where it's this is a widely widely panned DS Nine episode. I should add, this is the one where Worf and Dax go to Ryza for a vacation and, and you know Worf won't chill out and then there turns out to be some kind of like fundamentalist group on Ryza that's you know disapproves of hedonism or something it's a long thing <laughs> but one of the B plot of that is that Dr. Bashir and Lita are actually it turns out that they're actually on the verge of breaking up. And so Worf keeps seeing Bashir and Lita with other people. And he thinks that he's like seeing evidence of infidelity. But actually, we learn at the very end that this is all part of the Bajoran relationship breakup ritual. And at the very end, they like smash a pot or something. and <laughs> Cry hot tears of joy. <laughs> and, and shed hot tears of joy. Exactly. This is not to be included, but uh, last night as I was falling asleep panicking about how you guys were watching episode three of Shadow and Bone, I was like, oh, you know what? I don't love Star Trek. <laughs> I was like, and that's okay. <laughs> 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 and, uh, 
fine. <laughs> um, I don't hate it. I just don't love it. It's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> brought me comfort as I was falling asleep. This is uh this is a message, you know, on on behalf of Haley. Um, please. Just have Shadow and Bone on. In the back you don't have to watch it. Silence. This is a real message that Haley sent me and said, please just have it on. In the- you don't even have to watch it. Just a wink. Smiley face. <laughs> Winky face. I just want it to be renewed. I'm really chill about it. Don't um, worry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care that much. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of the experience of this whole podcast. Yeah. Right? We're sharing this thing that we're like we're very, very, very into, and we're like, please love it, please love it. It's okay, it's okay if you don't, but you know, if you could download and subscribe, that'd be great. It's, it's really, it's really okay if you don't, but you should download it. And you should please, listen please to retweet. it. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay because Haley doesn't like Star yeah, Trek. It's okay. it's okay if you don't like it. I think I was reading Six of Crows again, and then I was like, okay, what if she doesn't like this? What will I do with myself? And then I was like, oh, I don't like Star Trek. It's fine. <laughs> Um, I can I can point out many things that I like that you probably will not like. Riverdale. Have you ever even watched Riverdale? No, I don't. Obsessed with that show. I feel like I'd probably like it if I watched it. Whereas I have tried to watch Star Trek several times, and I like it's fine, but I don't I don't love it. All right. Well, um, this was the last episode of the podcast. Um, it was also the last time I'm gonna talk to you, Haley. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Anyway, so that that what we just did was kind of more characteristic of how um, breakups usually go in this on on the Chrysler side of this book. So that's going to be my transition into talking about Chrysler and his love stories. Yes. So over at the court of Prince Irenaeus, Chrysler has started teaching Julia, and he's definitely teaching Hedwiga. He's maybe also teaching Julia. He's giving them music lessons since he is a Kappelmeister. Um, and then a person named... Sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt you right away. I didn't... That wasn't... I didn't realize that that was what he was going to do here. So I, th- I think initially Master Abraham maybe asks about Chrysler becoming a Kappelmeister. And Irenaeus is like, no, no, no. I would never want to you know, put someone in charge of music and theater that actually knows about music and theater. Because then... They would care too much about music and theater and not enough about the people involved in it. So it's unclear initially, like, what exactly Chrysler is going to be doing. I For a while, I thought he was just going to be, like, you know, rich person friend, just hang out. Um, but then we suddenly learned that, oh, yeah, he's giving music lessons, has been giving music lessons to Julia, and it also starts giving music lessons to Hedwiga. It's, like, all very... I don't know what the timeline is for, like, how quickly all this happens. Yeah, and of course, because the narrative is jumping back and forth, we don't really get, you know, we don't get the chronological order like we've talked about. Um, and so, so yeah, so he's teaching Julia and Hedwiga, and then um, a, there's another person who arrives at court named Prince Hector, who is not a prince, but is from Napoli. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is a theme. Many, many princes, not princes in this story. Um, and so there are, there are just... Bar- and so Hector is brought to court as a potential suitor for Hedwiga, who is Princess Hedwiga, not a princess. Um, so there's this kind of complicated, I think at, at the very least, love quadrangle. 
So it sounds like the same thing happened with Prince Hector that happened with Prince Irenaeus. So Prince Hector is from Naples and um, his father was actually a prince. But then at some point, um, the family lost their princely status. Uh, whenever this, there's a reference like this, uh, th- there's kind of a, um, you know, the, we had um, Prince Irenaeus losing his, his status. We had the reference to Chrysler losing his post as um, privy legation counselor whenever something like this happens there's a veiled reference to the napoleonic wars but but that's that's the extent of any explanation that we get uh, kind of in universe within the mcu um the so so once prince hector loses his princely status he joins the french army uh and then he quits the french army and eventually joins the neapolitan army and he becomes a uh general you know, as speedily as only a prince can, uh, says the biography of Chrysler. So when Prince Hector's father died, Irenaeus started scheming about marrying Hector to Hedwiga. And so that's how Hector's ended up here. Uh, at some point, Hedwiga, a picture of Hedwiga was sent to Hector and he said, yes, I'd like to marry her. And then he has decided to come uh, all the way here himself to marry her. As opposed to sending a proxy, which apparently was also an option. Yeah, and he kind of butts heads with Chrysler right upon his his arrival, which sets up this kind of love quadrangle heptagon shape of of some some kind. So Hector, so Hector is here to marry Hedwiga. Hedwiga seems to be in love with Chrysler. Chrysler, you think, is in love with Julia, and then Prince Hector also has designs on Julia. Uh, nefarious designs on Julia. That's kind of the simple version of the quadrangle. I have my doubts about parts of this. Mainly, I think that Chrysler might be into Hedwiga. We also get a reference a little bit earlier in part two that Chrysler may have had a thing with Madame Benzon at some point. It's a very kind of incidental reference and it's very strange and it never gets explained and maybe would have been explained in part three, but he has this potential connection to Madame Benzon as well from earlier in his life. So I don't think he would be into Madame Benzon and then also be into Julia. It's like a, unless it's like a graduate type situation. Um, so that, and I think one of the, one of the reasons why I think Hedwiga is an interesting candidate here is that he, is that he kind of tries out tries out Ovid's test on Hedwiga because he makes her when when you know he becomes a music instructor and then he he makes her sing and she actually doesn't sing very well and I wonder if he like my theory is that maybe he was using that to like cure himself of love but couldn't I don't know oh interesting I, I fully understand why <laughs> the simpler theory might be the correct one here so what's your what's your main kind of like why do you think that Chrysler's into Julia well, I think that Chrysler's into Julia because Julia does what Kitty does. She sings with Chrysler and she sings beautifully and she has this like fantastic voice and he is he's definitely um I would say I feel confident saying that he definitely thinks that she's musically talented even if he's not into her. And so the parallel there of Julia singing with Chrysler very well parallels Murr and Kitty. But then, of course, we know that Murr and Kitty are not endgame, right? Like, their relationship falls apart. So it is also possible that 
that, you know, we learn in the Murr section that even if you can sing a beautiful duet with someone, it doesn't mean that that they're your soulmate. So even though Chrysler sings this beautiful duet with Julia and has kind of, he does have like a sort, sort of feelings around it, at least at, at the very least at the beauty of the music. And then... And he sings with Hedwiga, who is not as, or who Hedwiga is singing, and he, she's not as talented. But he does have this moment where he touches her hand and kind of like feels, feels some electricity. Yeah, that's the other thing. That's why the that electric charge that we mentioned earlier, um, it keeps coming up again. So the scene where Chrysler is teaching Hedwiga, he, I think he like grazes against her hand, or maybe he touches her or something. And yeah, there's this like electric charge that he feels. The trouble with Chrysler in part two, and I think this is this is this is really why I struggled to understand who's in love with who here, is that I cannot, for the life of me, tell in this book like his his strong feelings about music versus his strong feelings about people. So he'll just like go yes, into these yeah. raptures, but like I just don't know like what it's about. Why? Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. And so that's what I was saying with Julia. Like, it could be that it was, I mean, it could be that that scene where they're singing and he's like, she's got such a great voice that like, that's mimicking the love that Kitty and Murr are feeling. But maybe it's also just his love with the music. Um, and that's really what he cares about. I do think, you know, if we take the Chryslerian theor- theory of authorship, it is interesting to think that Chrysler is presenting himself as like a potential love interest to almost everyone <laughs> like you, there's a reading Madame for, Benzon, like, all of Hedwiga, the people Julia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe yeah. princess maria so, too that's hedwiga's mother like maybe yeah. maybe prince Irenaeus. Yeah. you know master abraham I know. get maybe them all hector? in here hector, yeah, hector. <laughs> we don't know how things are gonna go we, we just want to let you know we are not gonna know how things turn out in this book so after some of these scenes uh there's a lot of singing so <laughs> in part two First, uh, Chrysler sing, uh, hears Hedwiga sing. Then he sings the duet with Julia. Um, but Chrysler's also aware that uh, Hector is up to some villainy. So Master Abraham has warned Chrysler that Hector is uh, about to make some kind of move on Julia, uh, that he's actually in love with her. And uh, sure enough, uh, Chrysler is observing them in the park and uh, Hector does indeed, um, he's um, on the verge of um, making some kind of move on Julia, but then Chrysler instead interrupts them and insists that they all go play the piano, which is excellent. <laughs> he calls him your rascally highness. Which is <laughs> so now, you know, um, I think as, as you said earlier, Hector and um, Chrysler were already in a kind of at odds, but this puts them, you know, Firmly, they are now pretty antagonistic to each other. So part two uh, ends actually on a cliffhanger. So we learn that, you know, Julia goes back to the castle. Um, Chrysler is going up this path. But then suddenly we, we learn that suddenly a shot rang out deep in the forest. We don't know who shot who. We don't know like what happened. And then we learn that Prince Hector left Sigharsweiler right away. So he, you know, hasn't married Hedwiga yet. Um, don't know if that's that plans on ice or what happened to it. Um, he promised to return soon. Um, and then the groundskeeper finds Chrysler's hat with bloodstains on it. So is Chrysler dead? Did Chrysler put some blood on his hat? 
and disappear. I don't know. Spoiler, this is not that kind of book. Chrysler does survive this incident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to see him in next in a monastery where he's enjoying some of the, you know, fine breads and cheeses and wines of uh, monastic life. I, I'm very happy for him. I love that for him. Love that for anyone. Yes. <laughs> yes, so we will pick back up with Murr and Chrysler both having kind of recommitted themselves to... <laughs> Different kinds of disciplines. So yes, we will pick back up in part three with both Murr and Chrysler committing themselves to different kinds of studies. And we leave Chrysler here in part two on a bit of a cliffhanger. And we leave Murr uh, having recommit himself to the study of the fine arts and sciences after he after he's ended his relationship with Kitty amicably with hot tears of joy. He, you know, sits back. I picture him sitting back down at his desk and he says, I too was in Arcadia and then begins his begins his learning anew. <laughs> he returned to the arts and sciences. So say we all. We too were in Arcadia. At the end. At the end of the relationships. We recommit ourselves. You too perhaps were in Arcadia. <laughs> We'll see you in Arcadia, and we'll see you in part three. I'm on the call. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. See you later. Um, I just need to find out, because I'm having an event when you get back. Mm-hmm. For Mother's Day, you... Yeah. End of, end of tax season. Okay. Memorial Day. So when do you come back? Uh, May, like, 19th or something. Can you text me exactly? Yeah, it'll be a... Rose wants to know because she's going to Minneapolis. Okay, that's fine. It'll be a little bit, though. What do you mean? I'm, I told you I'm going to be on a call till 6.30. Yeah, yeah. Okay, bye. Sorry, my dad had knocks. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, oh my um, gosh, who is she talking to like that? No. <laughs> he, comes and takes, he comes and takes knocks once a week, which is so sweet. But then every time, like, it's always... I'm always on a call. And then he always comes in and is, like, looking at me. And I'm like... <laughs> I like, <laughs> and then I'm like, what do you, and like, it's usually, like I usually, he picks him up at 12 noon also when I'm on a call and I'm like, I always text him. I'm like, I'm on a call. Thank you. This is all going in the episode, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little interlude <laughs> of me being like, go, I'm on a call. <laughs> um, Okay, sorry, where were we? 